I'm Donnie Piercy, host of the Partial Credit Podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Dr. Jamie Weiner. He's a psychologist and co-founder of Inheriting Wisdom, a consultancy for high net worth families. Jamie works on all the problems that exist behind the money. Co-founder of Inheriting Wisdom with his wife, Dr. Carolyn Friend, he excels in activating families to become high performance families. Today we are focused on his book, The Quest for Legitimacy, how children of prominent families discover their unique place in the world. Such a cool conversation, such an awesome book, and you are going to learn so much. Thanks for listening. And and, and, by the way, before you go, it would be so cool if you would uh, reach out to your friends, your neighbors, your relatives, and said, uh, hey, do you listen to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12? And if they don't, share this episode with them. That would be so awesome. Thanks for doing that. You are too cool. Enjoy the show. The intro and outro were created and performed by Brian K. Buffington. You can find more about Brian at briankbuffington.com. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for his newsletter. Thanks, Brian. Cool, huh? It's the Education Podcast, your favorite show. With lots of groovy guests and they share what they know. So crank it up to 10 and let your neighbors know that here's another show with Dr. Steve Milletto. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Ah, ah, with Dr. Steve Milletto. Dr. Jamie Weiner is a psychologist and co-founder of Inheriting Wisdom, a consultancy for high net worth families. Jamie works on all the problems that exist behind the money. Co-founder of Inheriting Wisdom and with his wife, Dr. Carolyn Friend, he excels in activating families to become high-performance families. Dr. Weiner is the co-author of The Legacy Conversation, a book designed to encourage families to have meaningful dialogues about the impact of money and the importance of intentionality for families of means. He has authored numerous articles, and speaks frequently. Intrigued with the experiences of rising gen family members, Jamie initiated an ongoing qualitative research study called The Land of the Giants. The purpose of the study is to understand what it is like growing up in the shadows of other successes. Dr. Weiner's experience as a clinical psychologist lends unique insights to his understanding of the complex dynamics existing in families, businesses, and not-for-profits. His experience with leveraging the human capital that lies in multi-generational affluent families extends into the family office and business space where a family's needs and their business are often linked and complicated. Drawing on previous experiences, developing programs for Cook County Jail and Mothers Against Drunk Driving has given him insight into a broad range of human struggles. Jamie is a fellow of the Family Firm Institute, FFI. He has served on the FFI Global Board and chaired the editorial board of the FFI Practitioner, an online publication providing comprehensive news, analysis, trends, and research intelligence affecting the family enterprise provider community. You can learn more about him at www.questforlegitimacy.com. Today we'll be focused on Dr. Weiner's book, The Quest for Legitimacy, How Children of Prominent Families Discover Their Unique Place in the World. Jamie, it's awesome to have you on the show today. Say hi to everybody. Well, hi, everybody, and hi, Steve. I'm really glad to have this opportunity to to chat and talk with you. Well, th- thanks so much. It's great to talk with you, and this is this is so cool. And, you know, one of the things I got to ask you is, uh, could you talk about becoming a clinical psychologist? I mean, what was that journey like, and why'd you choose it? So there's a little bit of background to it. 
Um, my dad was a prominent rabbi in the um, north north shore of Chicago, so I grew up in, with some big models. And so sorting out who who I was going to be and what I was going to do didn't come magically, which I think is pretty common nowadays. Um, and so um, I went to school. I started majoring in theater. I switched at one point to majoring in, in uh, Jewish studies. Um, I wrestled with the idea of do I become a rabbi. While I was doing all of that, I worked in a community center, and I really loved it. And I worked with adolescents at the time and did other things within the community center. And as I got closer and closer to the age of 30, I realized I needed to make a choice, and I didn't want to be in the kind of bubble that you're in if you become a rabbi. But I really realized that I always enjoyed hearing other people's stories, and I really loved the idea of doing something that would make a difference on a much more individual level. Um, where I've done it now with larger groups as well in people's lives. And so that's that's how the choice came about. Um, but it didn't happen until I was 30 years old. Well, that's cool. So I, now, now, by the way, I got to ask you this. So are you a baseball fan? I, I like it. I'm not, you know, I mean, are we going to do the Chicago White Sox or Cubs question? Yes, or? that's exactly where I was going with that. My, uh, I was born in Chicago and my dad uh, um, was born uh, in the South Side and he was an avid, avid uh, um, White Sox fan, which uh, really drove him nuts because growing up in Daytona Beach, Florida, I had the uh, um, WGN down there and WTBS. So I got became a Braves fan and a Cubs fan and when I got a, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yes. When I became a teenager, my dad said, uh, Steve, we need to talk. And I, and I said, uh, what's that dad? And he goes, uh, um, he goes, the Braves I'm good with. He goes, uh, but you really need to stop watching the Cubs. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I'm a, I, I'm a Chicago fan. So you could take me to the White Sox or take me to the Cubs. And I'm okay. And if they're playing with each other, I'll just stand in the, the middle and, you know, root for whoever won. Nice, nice. That, just as, an, uh, as a note, uh, my dad was kidding with me that day, kind of. <laughs> and uh, uh, so I, I would watch both of them, but not when he was around. <laughs> so, <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, so sorry, I had to ask that question. Wow, what a, what a cool story. So, I mean, because this becomes your, your you know, your focus and, you know, you've, you've driven that to become a private wealth consultant. Uh, how'd you take this path and what is something that you learned that impacted you the most? And uh, this is, a, this is an interesting field that you, you've <laughs> taken on. So um, second marriage um, ended up marrying somebody who really grew up four or five blocks away from me. We think we were in a high school musical review together in high school, but we didn't know each other. So it, we didn't get married till 39 or 40. Her dad um, built a global business in um, the frozen food industry. Um, it's a longer story, but there had been a business before. And, and when that business ended, people stopped talking to each other. 
Um, her dad and mom passed away 35 days away, uh, away from each other. And so we started off really with a very personal concern about making sure that what happened in the generation before didn't happen with her family. And um, all of a sudden we kind of realized we weren't the only family struggling with that. And that opened this very um, interesting world of people who work with high net worth families and um, and many people go, well, they have money, so what do they have to struggle about? Well, there's a lot they have to struggle about, and there are a lot of family dynamic issues that go on. And um, in family businesses are, the, the majority of businesses across the globe are family businesses. That's wild. And, I, you know, it's, it's funny because for someone <laughs> to say, what troubles could they have? I mean, there's there's a reason why they were they write all those dramas and stuff like this. That, you know. <laughs> you know, the more siblings there are, the problems <laughs> I would think uh, increase. So uh, um, that would be uh, I can only imagine. I mean, I you're talking to someone who's uh, um, whose parents got divorced when I was young, and then suddenly I have all these other families. That are now that, that are no longer connected to me. By the way, I, you know, marriage, divorce, marriage, divorce type things, and uh, I can only imagine if uh, you know if a dynamic like that happened in there, that would not be uh, <laughs> very well. I, I don't know how many of your listeners have listened to Succession, seen Succession on Netflix, which is kind of the extreme, right? But it does certainly lay it out there. Um, and I understand, you know, this is second marriage for both my wife and I. I immediately took on three um, lovely grandchildren, uh, stepchildren. Uh, I now have nine grandchildren. And um, it, it was interesting balancing all of the dynamics that were going on. So I can imagine. I can imagine. That's, uh, um, it, that's, it's, that creates its its own aspect right there you know it's it, it's an um um just as just as a note i get, i gotta say this because like when i tell stories you know for whatever reason the different things broke up but like um one of them had to do with you know an older child who wasn't in the house thinking that the um the mom and my father were spending some wealth that they didn't have <laughs> okay <laughs> you know it's like wow really okay um all you had to do is see what they're doing you know the refinishing antiques and stuff like this and and uh what was left on the other side wasn't much of anything and but they imagined it and it's like i can only imagine oh boy that's a play on words i can only think that in some of this that you know, people's imaginations about, oh, there might be, I don't know. I'm, right now I'm starting to think about uh, Al, Capone, Al Capone's vault type of thing, you know, where they, <laughs> they think there's something buried that has all kinds of wealth in it that uh, you might have access to or something like this. I, I can only imagine what splits can really rip things apart. Well, at the extreme of that, uh, we know a lawyer worked with one family who had to bring all the the personal possessions into his office and have each sibling go in one at a time and pick an object until all the objects were gone. Cause otherwise they would have been at each other's throats. 
most families are not that bad. And much, I mean, there are a lot of good families out there, but there there are some pretty dramatic examples of what can happen. It's wild. That's wild. So, uh, so Jamie, at one point you developed programs for the Cook County Jail and Mothers Against Drunk Driving. How did these experiences give you insight to the broad range of uh, what humans go through? So the good news about having worked with a variety of populations is um, I think I've worked with almost any sector economically and culturally and um, Mothers Against Drunk Driving happened first. Um, I developed a statewide group for people who had lost somebody or been injured in a drunk driving crash. And I managed to train um, people from around the state. And some were people who had the experience, some were professionals, and created an eight-session support group that was done throughout the state of Illinois. A little bit later, um, was actually there um, for my postdoc internship. And so Cook County Jail is um, 80,000 detainees at any given time, at least it was back then. It had the largest um, psychiatric hospital on a single, single site. And I developed a group um, that I actually scripted like a play. Well, that was an eight-session group for the psychiatric portion of the jail, and we got it up to doing 30 groups a week. And it was the beginning of me really getting a deep understanding that across all cultures and all levels of economics, that um, there's some something about human nature that's pretty universal, and I'll talk about it a little bit more, but in the book, I talk about breaking moments and what I call periods of liminality of feeling betwixt and between. And everybody gets tremendously worried about those moments, which they should. But I began to see that some people use those moments to rise and to change their lives. And... um and that was true in the, the whether it was Cook County Jail and people who were accused of crimes or it was people who were victims. And um, and I became very curious about how what is it that causes people to make the decision to change their lives? That's awesome. I, I can imagine how after experiencing all that, how powerful that was. And just hearing you talk about it sounds like. Uh, you know, just had the impact on you to direct where you were going. So uh, that's 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 awesome. Uh, you know, this is bringing me to where I've got to ask this. So your your book is the quest for legitimacy: how children of prominent families discover their unique place in the world. So, what inspired you to write your book? So through the work we were, my wife and I were doing with um, right with families of affluence. Um, I completely kept running into every time I ran into um, somebody who was growing up in one of those families. I I, I noticed it was, everybody talks about it should be a great opportunity. 
And I noticed it was a struggle. And so um, I wanted to have some impact. Um, and it occurred to me that I kept hearing this group of being talked about as entitled, privileged. Um, basically, they were being called all kinds of names. And I went, I don't believe that's true. And so I started um, interviewing um, with Russ Hayward, a colleague from the UK. Um, we started doing interviews with rising gen family members, asking them the question, what is it like growing up in the land of giants? And not one time did any of them turn to us and say, so what do you mean giants? They knew exactly what we were talking about. And it allowed the conversation to dig a little bit deeper into what their lives were really like. That's awesome because that's, you know, it's, in, it's so interesting. I, I mean, you know, I, um, I can only, you know, you, you see in some fa family dynamics where if, if there's wealth, you see things where, you know, it, has it changed the person who's the young person coming up in it, or do they even have access to it or does it do anything to them? They're still the same person. And, and then you have the other dynamics where <laughs> it's like, you know, they don't have a care in the world and, and they share that <laughs> and they do whatever. And then they wish they had not been that way. Or, I mean, there's any number of things out there. And, and I, I, you know, it's, I have personally have, have, uh, been friends with someone who, you know, who knows how it turned out in the end because we moved away from each other, but we were good friends and, and uh, you saw how uh, different their world was in, uh, um, in worrying about uh, every little thing, including the outside world. So um, I, I, just what must have hit you here. So, when, um, so as you were planning and doing this, in the beginning when you were talking about the land of giants, did it kind of fall into place what the quest would look like, the quest for legitimacy, your book, um, and the direction for your research? I mean, how did... I mean, they let you in their homes or, you know, I mean, <laughs> excuse me, I want to talk to you. <laughs> yeah. So I, I know a lot of your audience are um, educators and other things like that. And it's kind of the first discovering is, you know, when you're a kid, you, you, the wealth is, you don't know about the wealth in, in some cultures, you may work in the family business during the day. You, you may wander around and, you know, you may grow up in that. Um, more and more businesses and ways of accumulating wealth are kind of remote from the family and separated from the family. But you go to you go to school, you do this, the things that everybody else does. Could be a boarding school, but uh, at some point for some of the people that we interviewed, but you do at some point, which is the first phase of um, what we call the quest, at some point you have an awareness that your life is different. My favorite example is a woman who grew up in a family that uh, traded diamonds. And her dad would show up um, at, at home with a bag of diamonds. Wow. And he would teach her how to count counting diamonds. 
And somehow when she went off to school, it kind of occurred to her that not everybody else was learning how to count by counting diamonds. And so, you know, it's just, it's just different that way. Um, what we did is we, we interviewed 25 rising gen family members from around the globe. Um, we interviewed them twice. We worked with the research team from the University of Adelaide. And what we discovered is no matter what the cultural difference is, is that there's a path that the rising gen um, go through. And it's not a linear path. It's like, like, not like take step one, take step two. But there are four phases to it. And um, and it's all about the struggle to be, take ownership of your life, to feel some agency over who you are. And I know enough to know that's true of everybody to some degree. Um and I think it's it's important as you raise somebody to think about how do you allow agency to grow. Um, but I think it is a little bit different from children for children of prominent families. I can only I can only imagine because I know, you know, it's I've had enough friends that have uh, had uh, um, or acquaintances who've had discussions with their families. Uh, about uh, you don't understand, you don't know me, you don't, you know, you always want to, you're always in my business or whatever. And it's actually, in some cases, they've never come to terms and it's split them up. But these also weren't families of prominence. So I can only imagine how much more, like, especially if things would play into it, like it's important that their world sees the family as a connected family, you know, that, that the family may all, all go to things for the whole purpose of, uh, you know, being there as the family or something like that. If you had those types of, of moments and, you know, what's funny is all I can think about right now is like, uh, um, and I've never been associated with it, but the, uh, you know, the queen, the queen of England and her family, <laughs> and, you know, there've, there've been some little detours that some of the family members have taken. And, uh, mm -hmm. I can only imagine what they were trying to do to protect, uh, their status and uh, and certain ways you're supposed to act and proprieties and stuff like this. So you could bring it down to different levels. So it, it's a great example because we've seen more of the queen of England's life than I think they really ever wanted us to see. And probably generations ago, they wouldn't have a comparison that I have is I interviewed Henry Kaiser from the Kaiser family. He's third generation. So his grandfather at one point was one of the wealthiest men in the world and helped, um, was instrumental in, in building the Hoover Dam and he had a car company. And you can imagine being in his house and having visiting dig dignitaries from around the world showing up. And, um, and he openly talked about just wanting to be a kid like other kids and got sent off to boarding school and kind of was told that he was to prepare, prepare for something based upon the family that he was brought up in. That's, that's wild. Cause that's uh yeah, I can, especially with families that people may not be as known like the queen of England and, you know, the English royalty, but, there's still these, these families that have are power brokers and are so, um, in, 
important to what's happening in our society and things like this or what's not happening and things like that. And, and they need certain behaviors out of their, their children or they expect them or they don't expect, they just do whatever they do and then wonder what's wrong. Um, the, uh, so I got to ask, was there a way that you decided who to pursue, who to talk to and stuff like that? I mean, it, so I, I had been, um, from previous work I had done in an organization called Family Firm Institute, I knew uh, people who worked with these families from around the globe. And they were the ones who made the initial introductions to me. Um, if I, I want, why would they, these people talk to me? But I have to tell you, every interview we did, they were hungry to talk. They wanted to share their experiences. And they wanted to share it in some ways because growing up in that world is pretty isolative. You don't necessarily, unless you're in certain communities where there are a bunch of people who are all wealthy or prominent, you, you kind of growing up feeling like there's nobody else out, out here like me. And, um, and so you kind of do what you have to do. And, you know, you talked about some who kind of act out and look like they're just waiting for the money and others who do purposeful things. I, I, I think underneath it, all of them have some feeling about what, of what will I measure up? That is so, um, just, I can only imagine uh, it's um, cause you know, and, and if you talk about it, you see this a lot with people who the money was generated in, or the status was generated in like the recent errors eras. Um, and, uh, and when I say that, I, it could go back <laughs> for a ways, but I, what's, what's kind of coming to mind right now are like, um, musicians who uh, made it big and uh, stayed strong and and uh, and did something right with their 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 funds and so they they stayed part of you know they they had capital and things like this and they they kept it as opposed to the you know the ones who you know did whatever they did with it and um, have nothing to their name now but uh, um, but then you see their children step into it and some of and right now I'm specifically thinking about in the rock world, um, you have uh, rock music world. You have some people whose um, children will have nothing to do with them. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and you have others who are really um, just, for lack of a better term, kind of in that spoiled brat sort of version. And then there's, and then there's the others who do great things. They work with, you know, organizations like, uh, um, you know, goodwill and, uh, you know, the, the organizations where they go and they take care of, um, people who are in their seniors, they can't, uh, they don't have visitors. I mean, there's any number of ones that I've, I've seen what they do. And it's just, it's just kind of interesting. What I was going to ask you is that, do you see, did you run into kind of like the difference between having, um, success or, or, uh, um, wealth or status, for a long period of time, and then a difference between those who it's only been a short, relatively speaking, short period of time because of something that took place in the family or something like this that, you know, someone hit stardom or for whatever reason. 
So let me start with one period of time. Okay. The the one family we interviewed, the rising gen family member, came, came from a 450-year-old family business. Another one came from a 250-year-old family business. Wow. And um, so rather than there being a big hero, by this point, there's um, there's some heroes, but there's this long history behind you. And um, depending on what the family is doing, there's visible signs all around you. So one family we interviewed, there were 2,400 descendants of the family who had some connection and relationship to it. But the way the family had structured what they did they only had six people within the family who had ownership of anything, who took on the risk and also got the reward. But for those six, they were all raised with the idea that there was no guarantee that they were going to have any stake in, in the business. And so they were encouraged to, to build their own lives. But the idea that 2,400 of them still felt a connection to the family. Many of them um, were enabled through the money that had been generated to do um, philanthropic um, activity. But the deal was that they had to be active in it. It couldn't be just check writing. So the family really figured out how to build connection um, over a long period of time. But I can't even imagine growing up knowing that there's over a couple hundred years of history behind me, which is a little bit different than people that we were interviewed, even in third and fourth generation families, where there's some history, but there's some connection to a particular person or persons who they can identify as the giants in their lives. And um, great, they have great stories. I can only imagine. And when you think about this, is where some of that pressure of not screwing up or not making, <laughs> you know, it comes kind of comes to mind that you are not being worthy. I mean, when you have something goes back four hundred fifty years, I, I just cannot imagine what it would be like when you know you want to do your thing, whatever that thing is, but then there's a pressure to be you know, Hey, don't go screwing around now. Cause we got, <laughs> and, and I mean, you know, the, the pressure on you to say, you know, where someone, someone might be saying though, you're not acting right. You need to be in this thought process. And, you know, and that's where I would think a lot of stuff, you know, cause when we go through our adolescent years, that's where, <laughs> that's where a lot of that sort of nonsense can build where you think that, Oh, it's just stupid. Um, but really not. I mean, to, to maintain a, a business or an environment and be a of status over, I mean, it's, most of us only think in terms of our recent, maybe back to a grandparent or maybe a little bit before that, but that's a long right. ways. It's <laughs> a long ways. Yes. And, you know, you, you mentioned adolescence. So um, from a psychological point of view, it's, it's, it's normal to want to, 
break out and do something a little bit different than the world you were brought in. And, and that's culturally based. It's more that's more true in the US than it is in Asia, um, where there's an honor system. Um, but still, developmentally, at some point, there and I joke about adolescents not having much meaning, and now we talk about emerging adulthood, and you know, and when does emerging adulthood end? And um, 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 and so that's part of the struggle that we observed with all the rising gen that we worked with. And um, and there's a lot of pressure in those families to, to be a certain thing, be a certain way. A lot of them have family governance. A lot of them, want, you know, the question of being in the business or not being in the there's all sorts of tangible struggles that kind of go with that. I can only, I only imagine, you know, one of the things that, uh, um, you know, just, just a note, the reason – reason why I bring all that up is, you know, you can't ever be an assistant principal in a high school, which I was, <laughs> and, <laughs> and be in charge of discipline, not to understand a little bit about some of the nuances of adolescence. <laughs> and, uh, and if it, if, if, so, you know, sometimes, you know, that was really directed towards families it, and they used getting in trouble in school to get the attention of, for whatever reason, what was going on. I have a couple specific ones in mind right now that I'll never forget probably, <laughs> but, but you know, it's like, uh, Oh yeah, well, I'm going to show you, I'm going to, you know, not, I'm going to cause the biggest problems I've ever caused. And one of them had to do with, uh, literally someone who was smart enough to understand if I cause ruckus, then they're, I'm going to get in trouble. But if I just kind of disappear into the woodwork, they're only going to notice me once I hit 10 days out, you know, so I won't hit, 10 exact days out i'll play the system and literally <laughs> the uh the blended family the the two um, parents uh um said to me uh we need your help to get our son to school i'm like he's 18 years old man what are you talking about you know and and uh um this was a family of wealth and uh that was there's lots of different names in there <laughs> you know it's such a relevant topic, Steve, because now I would imagine U.S. I have to sort out who's truly in danger and when it's over the edge from when it's somehow in the boundaries of somebody sorting out, working out family dynamics through their, their behavior, working out individualizing from the family. And unfortunately, um, our country has seen a rash of violence. So I, I, I would imagine just all the challenges that are potentially there in kind of helping helping parents, helping people figuring out who they're growing up. And because they've had the, the, the window to work with very wealthy families, but also to work at Cook County Jail, um, which is a whole separate discussion. But <laughs> I can imagine. you know, more and more you can see what's what's normal 
But you don't want anybody to 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 behave in ways and they, that they end up in Cook County Jail. Definitely not. They, you know, one of the things, and you've always already mentioned some of this, but I got to make sure we talk about it. Um, you kind of discovered some universal issues that were faced by some of your subjects, and uh, um, one of the one of the thoughts that you you talk about breaking points and the minality and uh, um, periods of disruption, and you also use the term feeling betwixt and between. So can you, so can we get dive into that for a minute? What are you talking about? So everybody's going to relate to it. If I say March of um, 2020, when all of a sudden COVID took over, we were thrown into a moment that broke all of our lives. Whatever appeared normal didn't appear normal. And um, I'm not sure we're done feeling betwixt and between, but it's, um, which is the definition of liminality is feeling betwixt and between. Um, The word liminality comes from the word lyman, which means an opening. So, um, So the real question of any breaking moment, whether it's COVID or something in somebody's life is, is it an opening for something else to come out of it? But that happens through a period of time that um, you struggled and you don't feel particularly good about things. And so we interviewed somebody who had been fired by his father, um, longer story by an email when he was coming back from the World Cup, stopped talking to his dad for two years. That is a period breaking moment and a period of liminality. And when he sorted out what he wanted to do, he felt it was very important to knock on his Indian Indian father's door. And um, his dad was so grateful that he had the courage to reach out because from Indian culture, his dad would have never done it. And it's um, even when you talk about the behavior in a, in a growing up as an adolescent, the hopeful outcome is over time, we'll, you know, that that adolescent is going to turn out well. They're going to have a connection to family. Um, they're going to make a difference in the world. And um, that's what we talked about. Um, and so that's what I mean by betwixt and between. Gotcha. Gotcha. And boy, you said that right about breaking the, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that little bug did a number on us. Cause that, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, I don't know if you ever driven uh, um, I-75 through Atlanta and, and all points southward or the reverse of it. But at most times that is a nightmare, especially in, there's a couple of counties <laughs> where it's like, oh my gosh, man. It's kind of like in Chicago driving the Eisenhower at like about four o'clock. So, you know, <laughs> I've been there. <laughs> and, you know, and what's crazy is that, uh, um, in the, in the beginning, you know, once everything really started showing itself, I-75 was kind of like a ghost town. It was literally like we were in the middle of like a Michael Crichton book or something, you know, and in drama straight. I was like, where is everybody? And, um, that was wild. So yeah, <laughs> talking about breaking it, it, it did get a number on us. That's for sure. Uh, so what, one of the things I got to do is, uh, can you talk about this statement? Uh, 
because I think you've run into this a little bit, the, the thought about can they fulfill their own dream or dreams, meaning the children of the whatever this family is, the family dynamic. And like you're just talking about the one who got fired by his father and, uh, you know, there's no communication for a whole bunch of years. What did you, did you run that a lot or? Yeah, we ran into it in everybody we interviewed in some ways. And, um, um, you know, we were interviewing a, um, a woman um, who um, his family had built a, um, an international business. Um, sort of the nature of the business meant that the, you had to have an advanced degree in science was not her thing so that she she already um not that she couldn't have been capable to do it but it was already a decision a point about if i'm not going to be in the business who am i going to be and she went through a couple careers she went through um, an advanced degree and a law degree and mba got all of this education felt like God, I, you know, they sent me to, taught me all these languages. I had all these opportunities. How do I take what I've learned and turn it into something that, um, that, that allows me at least to feel like I can walk in the land of the giants? You know, one of the things that I think about as you're talking is um, something that I, I was leading up to, but I didn't think I would really see all these connections to it. But uh, can you talk about how families, I mean, how they reconnect, how they create some sort of communication so that they don't destroy the, you know, the legacies or so they don't destroy the family members or they, so they don't, I mean, cause I can imagine there's a, there's a power that kind of pull, you know, might pull them apart, especially, depending on ages and where they live and who they grow up with and the feelings. If, if one, something's more protective than the other one or the image is a part of it. Can you talk a little bit about that? The idea about how they can kind of overcome those feelings of pulling apart. Yeah. I think Steve, we could spend a long time on that topic. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a big one. Um, it's a big one because nowadays people see the world much more dangerous than when I was growing up. So I remember the day my father brought back an English racing bike from England. It had been a trip there. We put it together. I was ecstatic. And I could go off and do what I wanted to do as long as I remembered what time dinner was. And I don't think um, families grow up that way. And so for parents, there's a... Um, because we talk about helicopter parents, we talk about snowplow parents. There's a, a challenge for how do I be there without, um, you know, raising kids that don't have any fortitude and don't struggle and don't build enough strength. Um, and, um, it's a big issue. 
But I think it's really a two-sided issue because I think it's an issue also for those who are growing up, which is how do I stay connected to my family and also figure out who I am and what do I want to do? And for me, when growing up, as I began to pull away, part of it was just the decision to go be there at least once a week. Now, when you begin to add prominence, so I grew up as, uh, in the family of a prominent rabbi in Chicago, on the north side of Chicago. My relationship with the fa- my father was about my relationship with my father, but it was also my relationship with the community and the religion and all kinds of things. I think lots of kids grow up in that way. Um, and part of what my wife and I have done as a living is helping families bridge the communication. And um, my wife's doing it much more now through um, philanthropy and legacy-related issues. Um, and I'm really focused in Adia. So we're going to do a retreat in spring of next year for rising gen family members. And one of the conversations with the family is how do they go back and have and, and ask those questions that I wish I could have asked my father before he passed away. As uh, I can, I don't imagine what those conversations are like as you know, uh, when you talk about, uh, um, the dynamics and uh, how they can work through or not work through if they don't, if they don't start, you know, down the path of good communication, you know, trying to f- either heal or trying to open or trying to uh, um, continue. I mean, I, I would think that, uh, you know, that's part, partly what you're trying to achieve. Um, and some people just don't know how to do it. So I don't know if that makes well, sense. it doesn't. It doesn't happen automatically, right? And there's right. no, and there's no, there's no one rule book that you can read that says do this first, do this second. So at some point, it takes a certain degree of courage to open up and have conversations. Um, sometimes in significant families even the parent generation beginning to talk about how they got there is it's a big revelation. Sometimes in some ways it's a more important conversation about is there wealth or not wealth or it's really because then at some point there's a conversation about, well, I tried this and it didn't work and the giant becomes human. And so even in my book, I have a, a chapter about, the difference between when giants open up and become mortal and are, are open to not um, not holding on to control and the image of themselves as as successful. Gotcha. Hey, uh, what your book is powerful, and it's an area that I never really thought about <laughs> until <laughs> I saw what you do and and read your book and. Uh, um, so I got to ask you, what do you hope readers will take away from the quest for legitimacy? 
So I hope what they'll take away is um, the idea, a couple ideas. One, that uh, rising gen shouldn't struggle alone. The, the, being able to find, which is why we're doing a retreat experience, they should have other people to talk about their experiences with. And two, I hope people take away the idea that if you look over the course of a lifetime, that the breaking moments and periods of liminality are that they're breaking moments and periods of liminality. And I watch kids who've ended up in psychiatric hospitals grow up and do great things. Um, I, 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 as a as a teenager as, as an adolescent for a principal you, you might have come across me um somewhere along the way because um because i challenged things um and then in the end it's really all about the outcome gotcha it, it, so it just a you know from an educator standpoint the different children and that you may run into and whatever level you're at, I mean, wherever you could be at a boarding school. I mean, it, it would explain a lot how, you know, the types of uh, interactions that may or may not be there and uh, what role that you can take or how to recognize what's going on. That type of thing, I guess, is what's really um, zipping through my brain here about this because we, you know, we work with the kids. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And, you, you see and, and, and the few people I interviewed who were in boarding school were scared to act out. So, wow, <laughs> wow that's I can I can imagine that too. That's something else. Uh, uh, Jamie, before we go, could could you let everyone know where they could connect and learn more? And I'll have all this information in my show notes so they can easily find you. So, um, a lot of people to go to the website questforlegitimacy.com um my email's on there so if you want to reach out but would also love people to know that the book is available anywhere you, you can buy books um and um i've worked very hard to make it a good read so um you may not feel like it's exactly who you're about you but i think if you get into the book there's plenty of moments that you can reach into so, um, so that's how to reach me. Excellent. And I'll put that information in the show notes. And, uh, so it's easy to find, especially if you're listening to it on your phone, you go in there and just click on that information. It's all active. So take it straight to Jamie. So good stuff. And by the way, that it is easy to read. And it is something that I noticed, which is that I may not, there's no, <laughs> there's not prominence nor, uh, nor wealth, but at the same time, the things that, you know, you possibly could do to, that your family would not appreciate <laughs> or, <laughs> yeah. or the things that, uh, you know, the different, as you're growing up, the different aspects that you have where there is pressure to be what they want you to be or, or, you know, however that, that plant pans out and, you know, they, they thought you're going to go into business with them or they thought that, uh, you know, you would follow in their footsteps or, you know, whatever it is, it doesn't, you know, it's, it's what I started thinking about as I was reading this. Cause I, I've had a few of those connections with uh, children of others, other worlds where I, you know, as a kid, I didn't really understand it at all, but <laughs> you know, in the modern era, I really understand what they were, you know, why <laughs> yeah, I told you a story about the one where 
they had to check out my family before, <laughs> before we were allowed to see each other. These were elementary school kids. What a great story. <laughs> Thanks. It's, it's, it's a funny thing. It's, uh, but, uh, um, but it's just interesting, an interesting world. And I, I think your book makes you think about the, the, your own stuff, especially in this world today, like you talked about riding wherever you wanted to today. Maybe not so much. I know it. <laughs> I had those worries too about my own children. So good stuff. I got I to gotta ask you this. I got one final question for you and it has nothing to do with what we've been talking about. Uh, do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it? And what would you say if given a chance to say thank you? Yeah, I do. I have um, probably, I'm lucky enough to have a couple. Um. It's really important, um, based upon the teacher that I have, that that trust thing just happens. And, you know, I had a teacher who I did some individual consultations with, was also part of a study group with, and I just, he always kept me on the edge about thinking about something new, but he did it in a space that, um, was non-judgmental, tremendous amount of trust, and I just, I, to this day, I thank him for the gifts. That's awesome. Uh, Jamie, I can't thank you enough for talking with me today. Your book, The Quest for Legitimacy, How Children of Prominent Families Discover Their Unique Place in the World, has so much to share for all of us. I wish you the best in all you do. Thank you. Hey, you have been listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast to help you help kids achieve their dreams. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the podcast network based in Canada called Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right. The opinions expressed on Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Hey, thanks for listening. It would be awesome if you visited my website at stephenmaletto.com and connected with me, left a review, and listened to more episodes. And by the way, you could also share it with your friends, with your family, and uh, your colleagues. Thanks so much. You're awesome.